It is always fun to be here. It has been a while. You're all looking younger and better than you did two years ago. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, we are in and out of Vienna a fair bit, but it's a little intimidating occasionally because now you have your own fencing school. Maple Drive. We, my boys and I are going to Dunkin' Donuts on the way here. It's a little, that's a little highbrow fencing school. We don't, inside the Beltway, we don't have a fencing school. We have other things. But um, You are messing with my work. You are messing with my work. This is one of my favorite movie lines. It comes from a movie called Collateral, which stars Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. How many of you have ever seen this movie? I'm going to give away a little bit here, so I'm sorry. But Tom Cruise utters that line to Jamie Foxx as they've been about halfway through the movie because Jamie Foxx literally is messing with Tom Cruise's work because Tom Cruise in the movie is a hitman. Jamie Foxx is a taxi driver, and he's realized that what Cruise is doing has strapped him to the rocket ship of killings Cruise is doing around Los Angeles, my hometown, that night. And so Foxx, in a, in a, in a desire to, to kind of thwart and get in the way of these killings, takes his briefcase, Tom Cruise's briefcase, and throws it off an overpass down into one of the major highways in Los Angeles. And Cruise, who clearly has no fear of killing people, does not kill Jamie Foxx at this moment. But what he says is, you are messing with my work. Because Cruz has some sense, even as a hitman, that work should have integrity and order. And he has an ethic about how and why he kills people. And Jamie Foxx has just messed with his ethic. Now, I bet all of you here work in some way, shape, or form. Be you student, parent, stay-at-home parent, paid work, part-time work, NGO work. We all have some sense that our work, our vocation matters. Like Tom Cruise, I hope no one here is a hitman, but like him, you have some sense of, of how you do and why you do work because it matters to you. It's, it's important. It's vital. It means something. And of course, as you give your life to Jesus, this good news of Jesus, this gospel series, gospel and life that we're in as churches together, one of the fundamental questions, maybe in some ways the most important of the eight topics we will cover, is this question of, does my work matter to God? Does God care the way I care about my work? Does my life with God integrate, or is it separate from, right? Like, is my work a part of, just a slice of my life with God? Is it central to my life with God? Is it removed from my life with God? And even more importantly, could my work not just as some sort of means to make money so I can give when we do the offering at Christ Church Vienna, but could my work be a central part of my life and the good news of the gospel of Jesus? Does the gospel help us answer questions about our work? Does it impact how you sell, if you're here and you're a salesperson, or how you set and pursue goals, or how you lead an organization, how you supervise? When you commute or in meetings, when you're at soccer practice or high school geometry, does the good news of Jesus mean something in that space? Or does God only care about what you do here on Sunday morning for roughly 90 minutes? Or if you're at a Bible study? This line from the series, if the gospel changes everything, how does it change our work and vocation? We're going to take a brief dive into this. Our church spent eight weeks on this this summer, and we still didn't cover all of it. So I am right up front going to tell you this is a brief dive. 
But I'm going to recommend two books to you if you want to go further. One is by a man named Tom Nelson called Work Matters. Tom Nelson is a pastor in Kansas City who has spent a lot of time on this topic. That's the book we use as a church this summer. If you want a little deeper theological dive, a man named Gene Veith has written a book called Luther at Work, and it's Martin Luther's Theology of Work. And Luther was a big part of a sort of a turn in church history in the Reformation about the way the church saw work. Work again from cradle to grave. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Genesis 1, if we could put that passage up, that'd be great. I'm going to make five brief observations this morning, three suggestions, and give you a couple questions at the end to ask over lunch or as a family or in a small group this week. Genesis 1, we heard just a little bit read this morning. Again, this is a familiar passage for many of us. This is how the story, the gospel story begins. We're invited into what God is doing, Genesis 1 and 2, how God creates these parallel accounts of what God is doing to create the world. And in that beginning, we see God is creating with his very words. He's bringing light to darkness, order to chaos, structure to distant organization. What can we learn about God and work here and in this passage? First, in these texts, we see God is at work. God is working. You and I belong to a God who is active and engaged and up and at him and work. He's not sitting around waiting for you to work. He works himself. And in this text, you see it's not just the Father or just the Spirit or just the Son. It's the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working. The Spirit's over the darkness. The Father is speaking. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. The whole Trinity is a part of this work in these chapters. And we see God, some of the the phrases we'd use here in D.C., right? God is both strategic and tactical, right? Genesis 1, he's over creation. Genesis 2, he's in creation. Yahweh Elohim. He's strategic, he's tactical, he's the forest and the trees. And in these passages, he's creating, designing, organizing, affirming, counseling, teaching, setting vision, and empowering. Verbs that many of you will use in a meeting or on a slide deck this week. Any solid explanation of work and vocation in the gospel begins here with God. Lots of us, all of us have questions about work. Who am I? How am I created? What should I do? What should I study? What should I look at in school? What career test should I take? But first, our exploration of work begins with the Lord. Not with your gifts or interests, but first with God. This is work before the fall. The goodness of work stitched into creation from the very beginning. Work, therefore, is not a result of sin, but it's a gift and an invitation as part of our identity. So first, God works. Second, you and I are created in the image of this God who works. We bear his image. We're placed in the world to look like and point to him in our life. So it stands to reason that you and I are created and sent to work as well. We're created in the image of God who works so that we may work. And our work will look like God's works. Again, here are the verbs I used about what God is doing, describing God's work. He's creating and designing and organizing and affirming and counseling and setting vision and empowering. You could apply many of those verbs to yourself, I bet, in the work you will do this week. Not just paid work. could be student work. could be non-paid work. But you and I will apply those sorts of attributes ourselves. When we do our work well, we will mirror God's good word and character, what he's doing. Let's just look for a second. Think of this word create. Some of the ways God is creating here that mirror the ways you and I create. First, God is making something new. 
then you and I often make something new in our work. Maybe a new NGO. Maybe a new store. Maybe a new coffee shop. A new book. A new plan. A new strategy. You and I often come and go, oh, we're going to make something new. Which is exciting, right? God makes something from nothing. Ex nihilo. This description we use from Genesis 1. You may feel like, how many of you this week know you need to do something to work and you feel like all I have right now is nothing? Right? How many of you have to write a paper this week and you feel like, oh my gosh, nothing? Then this is the God you can pray to. Dear Lord who makes from ex nihilo, you know the English paper I have due Tuesday. You and me, Lord, never been tighter. Help. But it's not just that, right? You could be a business plan that helps the company grow. It could be the way you lead your family and you feel like, Lord, I have nothing. Help me create a way to love my family or provide for my employees or serve others. God makes something in this passage from words. This is Washington, D.C. Probably everybody here uses words to create in some way, shape, or form. Write a story, a paper, a letter, an email. Cast a vision. Encourage a colleague. Develop legislation. Work on financial planning. Design a house. All these probably shape and are shaped somewhat by words. You and I are given words. It's a part of being created in God's image to have words. Words are a gift from the Trinity. The Trinity uses words to communicate. So when you and I speak, we're doing something the Trinity does. So we shouldn't take words lightly. And it's an amazing invitation to use them to create and to work. So God works. You and I are made to work. And then God doesn't just make us to work, but he invites us into what he's doing in work. What is God's work for us? It's to steward and care for the world. You read through Genesis 2, you and I are placed in a garden to tend a garden. That's the image we're given. And gardeners help things grow. Right? They come alongside, they pay attention, they work hard to help things grow. Now this invitation you and I get is broader than just our paid work. The invitation you and I have is broader and gives validity and dignity to things beyond just our paid work. You could do a lot of work and not be getting paid. You could be, again, a stay-at-home parent, not being paid, but your work has incredible eternal value and dignity because it's part of what God has placed you in the garden, your particular garden, to do. And this gets back to some of the gospel and the Reformation and the good news of Jesus that's been changed in church history. Up through the Middle Ages, the church had adopted this phrase, calling. Do you have a calling? And it's particularly applied to coming into the professional clergy, like Corky or Johnny or me. Do you have a calling? And what the Reformation did was, wait, go back to Scripture, go back to a kingdom of priests, go back to the, some of these passages, and Luther especially realized, wait, everybody has a calling. So the question isn't, do, do you have a calling for ministry? The question is, do us in ministry help you identify and serve your calling? There's no separation between Sunday and Monday. And the broader term, the better term, is probably this idea of vocation. You and I have a lot of vocations. A question to ask rather than do you have a calling would be, how do I serve God in my kingdom of heaven, citizen, sent seven-day life? For example, my calling, here's some of my callings. Husband, father, son, priest, uncle, brother, friend, these are some of my callings. Those take on different sets of volume and requirements depending on what's going on in my life at the time. Almost two years ago, my father 
was diagnosed with very serious cancer, and for about three months, my calling as a son was much louder, more important, needed more attention than my other callings. Was I still working? Was I still living under my vocation? Absolutely. But other vocations in that point in time took a bit of a hit. So this idea we often hear of balance is probably a false word to use or to pass on to our kids. The better idea is sacrifice. Lord, what are you calling me to right now? Taking for and, and embracing, oh, I might be sacrificing some things so that I can give attention to this part of my calling and vocation. There are weeks where I preach uh, sermons less than I'd probably love in my ultimate standard because I was a better father to my kids, and I took a sacrifice there. There are other weeks that my kids might take a hit because I'm giving energy to our church in a way that means that my focus as a vocation is there. This coming week, I'll travel because the school I went to, a seminary, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be on the board of, and we have big meetings, and I'll, so I'll travel, and just on Wednesday, I'll be a son a husband, a father, a board member, an uncle, and a brother-in-law. Just Wednesday. I'm tired now. That's a lot of stuff. That's not taking for granted, like, just as God's witness on an airplane, right? If you've ever been in an airport or an airplane, you know that's a calling, to be a person who exhibits the fruits of the Spirit on an airplane. Like, pray for me now, right? That's not easy. So you and I are invited into these broad callings, and it'd be a good place to help us ask, and you'll hear in my questions at the end, what are your vocations and callings? How do you embrace those? What do you do? Some of those are going to be holy and great, and you're not going to get paid. Many of you are probably at a point where your parents might be ailing, and so your calling as a child is a very different calling. So God works. He invites us to work in his good kingdom and to do it the way he does it. And that's the fourth point. Because I'm created in God's image and invited into working like he does to tend a garden, I'm to work to care for creation the way he does, which speaks again to how I work. I'm invited in this, this part of the gospel narrative, creation, fall, restoration. That's where we are, the gospel in life for us to do my work unto God in a gospel way. Part of the fall, which impacts you and my work, makes it hard and sweaty and frustrating. Part of the fall is that you and I want to do work just for ourselves and not unto God. That's an ultimate implication of the fall. My work is about me. There's so many implications we could dance out there, but primarily about my identity, right? Like I, my identity is as this particular thing. If I don't do well at this thing, I don't know who I am. What the gospel does is flip that. We suddenly do our work for others, and we do it unto the Lord. We stop thinking about ourselves. Gospel work is still fruitful work. In, in the season of the gospel, when we move from redemption to restoration and God's return from Isaiah 65, it doesn't happen that there's no more work. Jesus happens, we all come, we get nice cocktails by a pool. We sit and the angels play music while we get tan and don't get cancer, and we just hang out in heaven. That's actually not what happens. Read Isaiah 65. What happens in redemption is the work becomes fruitful work. Fruitful work unto the Lord and for other people. I'm very thankful that you were willing to read Luke 2 this morning, which of course is an Advent passage. You don't often in October read Luke 2. And the reason I wanted you to hear that is I want you to think about where are the shepherds when they are invited into the work of redemption? 
Does the passage say, and some shepherds were out at a prayer retreat, and then the angels came? Some shepherds were at the James Madison High School Auditorium when the angels came. Some shepherds were at a small group, a Christ Church Vienna small group, or the Q Ideas Conference, or all the other great things you guys do as a church, and the, and the angels came. No, it says, the shepherds were out keeping watch in the field. So think about your week and your work and your vocations, and, and stitch your own claws into that line. The shepherds were out in algebra class at Madison High School. The shepherds were out in a really boring committee meeting. The shepherds were out on a sales Skype call. The shepherds were at work. Part of Advent, part of Luke 2, part of the glory of the gospel redemption is the inbreaking of Jesus and the good news at work. If the shepherds aren't in the fields that night, they don't see the angels if they're not working, right? They could have been praying somewhere and missed it. How do we work then? What do we do? We're invited in to this guardian, this responsible stewardship as God's people. Part of what that does is should increase your dignity. You are sent as stewards of the king of the universe, wherever you're planted, to help things thrive. One scholar says, we are sent to be responsible stewards or facilitating servants. When I was a kid in 6th and 7th grade, my parents lived in Annapolis, Maryland. And if you know Annapolis, you know the whole town is really stamped by the Naval Academy. So my brother and I had friends who li- whose dads were professors at the academy, and they would invite us over and, and really into the first kind of video games, which are like line item dot matrix kind of things in the library basement of the academy. And there was a game there that's been updated many, many times over now, but the essence, essence was, again, you're given a kingdom, with limited resources, right? And you can spend a certain amount of resources. You can, this much wheat, this many soldiers, this much water, here's the season going on. And you have to decide how you're going to spend them, right? If you spend it all on yourself and don't steward the kingdom, what would happen? Revolt, right? The peasants rise up, pitchforks, you die. What you do if you're smart is you're a responsible steward. You come to that situation and you think, how much... How much wheat do I need to give to my peasants so they'll be okay? How do I feed my soldiers so they don't bring a coup? How do I navigate relationships with other nations? It was this whole broad sense of vocation and stewardship. And that's some of how you and I are sent into the world. God works, you work, you're to work as he does, and you're sent to steward in his way to help things thrive. If you don't, the settings we're in will revolt. Creation will revolt. Your teams will revolt. Your peers will revolt. Your colleagues will revolt because you're not living the way God sent you to live. The last observation I want to make, and then I want to give a couple suggestions, is to note again that work is to be done together. The Trinity is doing this work together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity's at work in Genesis 2, then Adam and Eve are at work. You and I are at work in so much. Is about our work really is about thriving with other people, right? There's that great line, if I could just, you know, get rid of people at my work, I could really get some stuff done, right? If you're a high school teacher, you might be like, man, if the students would just leave the classroom, I would be such a good teacher, right? Or if your work colleague who's so annoying could just leave your team, wow, you could get stuff done. But part of our responsibility as gospel bringers in our work is to work well with a team, a work team, your church team, your family team, 
school team, sports team. A major part of your and my responsibility is learning how to steward and nurture not ideas, but people. Part of being sent with the gospel is being sent to care for and help people thrive the way the Trinity helps one another thrive. So a broad summary and then these suggestions. Because of the cross and the gospel, we are stitched in a new part of our story. We are sent as redemption signs into Vienna and Maryfield and Falls Church and the district and McLean. We're to help demonstrate a respect towards God's creation and his people and to help others in the cities we're in to thrive for the kingdom. As big as the blast zone of sin is, and it's very big, the good news of the gospel is the cross and the empty tomb are much, much, much bigger, grander, and stronger. And so your and my work is a central part of our redemption that points to restoration. And helping one another know how we work and know our vocations is a vital act of the church. It should be a vital act of parents. If you're here with kids, one of the things you should be committed to doing is helping your kids understand their gifts and vocation. So when they are 16, 17, 18, they have a better sense of how God made them for the kingdom. Because this would be a broad gospel call. Come shepherds, certainly, we know from Luke 2. Come tax collectors, come fishermen, come teachers, lawyers, bankers, House and Senate staff, journalists, State Department, counselors, stay-at-home parents, accountants, photographers, military personnel, students, event planners, even clergy. Come to the king and be fruitful, multiply, steward, and care for God's good world. Because you and I are still in a fallen world, so it's still going to be hard, and we're going to need help to do it well together. Tim Keller says, you should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. You should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. But you are still redeemed and sent to create, to multiply, steward, and partner with the Lord. Could you put up this Dorothy Sayers quote? This is from a great article the British novelist Dorothy Sayers wrote called Why Work? It'd be as good a summary of everything I've said as you could find. What I urged then was a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. I asked that it should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. That it should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. And that man and woman made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. It both dignifies and makes practical our work, this simple paragraph does. So three suggestions and then three questions. First, what does it look like now to go and be a gospel model for work this week? First, do good work. Do good work. The only Christian work is work done well. The only Christian work is work done well. God is not served by technical incompetence. Get good at what you do. When we did this series at our church, we started one sermon and I said to everybody, draw me the type of chair Jesus would make as a carpenter. Everybody draw a chair. And then we turned and share, shared our chairs. 
And nobody made a lousy made chair. Nobody could imagine Jesus making a lousy chair. So nobody should imagine you and I as kingdom people making lousy work. What if you were a great witness and evangelist but a lousy plumber? Right, you're telling somebody about Jesus and you're putting pipes in wrong and you leave and an hour later, toilet blows up, bathtub sinks through the floor and you drive on the, I really told them about Jesus. We had two women in our church this past year but whose parents, whose dads were both American Airlines pilots for decades and were retiring. Part of what happens in your last flight with American Airlines is when you fly in typically to DFW, to Dallas, they, they bring all the fire trucks out, they shoot water over the runway, they tell everybody this is your last flight coming in. Both these guys were Jesus-loving pilots, like wonderful men. And I thought, you know, what if they, th- what is their job there? Right? What is their job as pilots? It's their last flight, retirement package is all signed, everything's legal, they're just landing the plane. What is their job there? What if they were to say to everybody in the plane, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know this is my last flight with American, I'm so glad you're here, and I wonder if any of you have ever decided, thought about what would it mean if you met Jesus tonight? <laughs> what I'm going to do before I land at DFW is just circle until I run out of gas, because I know where I would go, and I wonder if you know where you would go. And because I love Jesus, what I want to do is just push the point as a witness to you that you should know Jesus before you die. So we're just going to circle till I run out of gas. Would that be a good, well-crafted work act by a Jesus-loving pilot? No, right? It'd be like the last thing they do before prison, probably, right? No, the best thing they could do was what they did. They landed the plane safely and well as a pilot. So first, do good work. Be a craftsperson. As a student, whatever you do, paid or not, this week, be a craftsperson. Do good work. Second, use good words. Think about, how do I use my words at my work and vocation? How do you use your words? Are your words consistent with God's blessing and God's blessed words in Genesis 1? When you come into a meeting, do you think people are excited because they know you'll be positive, open, encouraging, honest? You may have hard things to say, but you'll do it in a helpful and affirming way? Or at your work, are you the cynical person? The sarcastic person, the negative person, the bringer of malaise? So good word, good work, good words. Third thing, good people. Remember, you go to work with people creating the image of God who've been given the same invitation you have because of that image bearing to do good work for the king even if they don't know the king. So you should treat your workers as image bearers too. People you work with, the people who are so annoying on the other side of the cubicle, that person who is so frustrating on the school bus, even that sibling who drives you up the wall. One of the the worst places to be in, I know this because I substitute taught during seminary, is to be in the break room at a school. If you want to know the ethos of a school, go to the break room and watch how teachers do or don't talk about students. Not that you don't deserve it, occasionally. But if you're a teacher, what kind of light do you bring into that break room? Do you positively, do you affir- note the kids who are great and affirming and all, that kind of thing? If you're a, a student and a teenager, how do you talk about teachers, coaches, peers in your vocation? Do you use good words for those good people? When you enter your office, is your attitude there you are, or here I am. 
Any meeting this week, what if you ask the Lord to help you do that? Lord, help me walk in with a there-you-are attitude rather than a here-I-am attitude. Here-I-am attitude is like, look at me. My ideas have to matter more than anybody else. I can't share praise with anybody else. I'm easily wounded if my ideas aren't taken. So, five observations, three suggestions, three questions. Questions to take with you into the day or the week. What would you say are your list of primary vocations? I made a list for you this morning of some of mine. What are your lists of primary vocations? Sibling. Uncle. Godparent. Coach. What are your primary vocations? Second question, which of those primary vocations do you feel adequate for? I feel, I feel good at this. I feel ready for this. I feel... And then the third question, of course, follows up the second. Which of those vocations do you feel inadequate for? Because that would be a great thing to step in to do with your children or your small group or a group of men having coffee beginning to end to say, why don't we pray for each other in those vocations we feel inadequate for? Because everybody look around the room for just a second. Everybody just a quick scan. All of you feel inadequate for some of your vocations. Anybody who's a child here, I guarantee your parent feels inadequate as a parent. Everyone here. Right? Nice. Yes, someone. <laughs> but all of you invited into those things too, right? You're given those things to work under the king. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are king over all the earth. You are Lord of heaven and earth, as we sang. There's no part of our week that is not a part of our life and intimacy with you today. There's no place anyone here goes this week that they will be alone. There's no place anyone goes this week who cannot be with you. Those places where we feel inadequate, those places where we feel prepared. Lord, help us partner with you as gospel people on Monday and Wednesday and Friday, not just this morning. Grant us the courage and the discipline, the self-discipline to pursue good work. Place in our hearts and our mouths good words. And remind us, Lord, that we are with good people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.